Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32 today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus, we're still talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and man, we're only in chapter 5, and there are two chapters to go. So, uh, But that's okay. Maybe we can pick up the pace after we get through this first bit. Who knows? Um, Jesus says, he, he just addressed um, the sin of lust. Remember uh, from two weeks ago, he, he just talked about if you look at a woman to lust after her, then you have committed adultery already with her in your heart. And now he comes to divorce and he, he offers, uh, he tells us that it's a very similar sin. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's the letter of the law. Remember the letter of the law. And then now he says, this is the heart of the law. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. When I began preaching several years ago, mostly out of necessity, I made a commitment because I was, my story in the pulpit is very much like Jonah's. I told you before, I think he's the one I relate to most in the Bible. I didn't want to be here. <laughs> and the Lord has a way of dragging you and putting you where you're supposed to be. Um, but I made a commitment when I began doing this uh, several years ago, both to myself and to the Lord, that if I was going to do this, if I was going to get up here and herald the word and put the study in and, and, and take on the responsibility of being a teacher, which if any of you study the word, you'll know that means that we have double accountability standing right here and, and saying what, what is the truth. Uh, we're doubly accountable to it. If I was going to accept all that on myself and all the hours I was going to, have to put into it and the time I was going to be missing with my family when I could be out doing fun stuff with them. If I was going to do that, then, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to shy away from the difficult truths. I'm not going to shy away from the tough things in, in the Bible. And, and the reason for that is because I have never, personally, I've never been particularly built up by feel-good preaching that tells me how to step into my destiny or step into my victory or step into my blessing or step into my anointing. We're always stepping into something. We could go on about what that something actually is, but I won't. It has never served me well to focus my faith and my understanding and even my hope on what is in it for me. Now, I don't know. Some people may need to hear that. They need to hear that this good news has something for you. But that has never served me well. I grew up in church, um, so I've always known about the good news. I've always known there was something in it. There is something in it for me. There is a hope of glory in it for me. There is a, an eternal heaven in it for me. A, an eternal joy that is greater than anything I'll ever know here. That's in it for me. Um, but it has never served me well to, to focus on what I get out of it. To me, that, that kind of approach 
um, is it's the leaven of the Pharisees, to use the words that Jesus used. It just, it just it sets us up and puffs us up with hot air. And, and just like hot air, there's no weight to it. Um, it doesn't stick around hot air. And unless you keep adding more hot air to it, then the hot air that's there eventually becomes room temperature and it's nothing special, right? It, it dissipates. It, it fades out. Yeah, you can, you can build uh, mega churches and you can fill arenas and conference halls with it, but those churches and arenas and conference halls are often filled with people who don't know what it is really to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They don't understand the weight of it. They're full of people who have no real foundation to stand on because they've not been given solid ground to stand on. They're taught to crave what they can get out of the arrangement. And then as soon as their blessings stop flowing, so to speak, or as soon as they face a difficult situation, as soon as you poke a hole in that hot air balloon, the whole thing comes down. Because they don't have anything weighty. There's, no, there's nothing solid uh, to what they've been given. There's nothing solid to what they stand on. As soon as they stop being able to make uh, a connection, or as soon as there's a disconnect between, well, I'm, I'm being faithful to church, and I'm going, and I'm ticking all the boxes, when there becomes a disconnect between that and what is actually going on in their life, and they run into some difficulty, some things they don't know how to explain, situations where they really have to lean in and trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of God, when they get to that point, the whole thing comes crashing down because they've not been given a theology that, that involves anything bad that can happen to you because God is an all good God and that means all good things must happen to me you know I wasn't told in Sunday school that if I become a Christian that uh, I, I might face some trials or that there are hard truths to have to deal with or that I might come up against the scripture and it might rub me the wrong way and I might have to make some changes When they lose the connection between, you know, I'm ticking all the boxes and, you know, this is hard truth, then the hot air balloon comes crashing down. So I've never found it uh, virtuous for me. It's never served me well to put my hope in what I get out of it. What has served me well is to put my hope in the glorified Christ. Jesus exalted as his name above every name, the lamb that was slain and is seated at the right hand of God who rules and reigns over all of his creation. Christ victorious over sin. I have nothing else that is good. Nothing in me. that, And if that's all that I have is that Christ has been victorious over sin, that is enough. There's nothing, like Paul said, there's nothing in this flesh that is good. And everything in me that is good comes from God. Everything in the world around me that is good comes from God and His steadfast love and His unending mercy and His amazing grace. 
I don't want to be full of hot air. I want, I want substance. I've got to have something a bit more solid to stand on because I know that there's difficult truth that we have to deal with. There are tough things that happen in the world. It's not a bed of, of, of posies. I could say roses, but even roses have thorns. I understand that roses have thorns. So I don't want to be full of hot air. I've always had the idea that I don't feel like I've really been to church unless I've had a, about one or two punches to the gut. You know, if I, man, if I get punched in the gut, if I feel like I've been, then I've really been to church. If I'm, I mean, and the reason for that is because the Word of God is holy and righteous and eternal truth, and it ought to convict me. When we see people standing before holiness in the Bible, when they stand before Christ, when they stand before the angel of the Lord, or they stand before God himself, what do they do? They tremble. It ought to make me tremble. And if for some reason I'm not convicted by the holy, righteous, eternal word of God, then one of two things is going on. Either I have mastered it, which is highly unlikely, or I have become so blinded to the truth that I can't see it, which is more likely. And I don't want to be in that situation. I'm telling you all this so that I can tell you that the Bible is given to us to show us the way of righteousness. It is given to us to instruct us in how to be more like Christ, our Savior. How to be more like our Lord. And there will naturally be things that will confront us and make us uncomfortable. There will naturally be things that, that will rub us the wrong way, that will cause us to have to make a decision. And we have to make the decision. Are we going to be offended by the truth that is in this Scripture, or are we going to be transformed by it? When we come to difficult passages like the one we have today, we are forced to confront the realities that are right in front of us. We either do that or instead we could just breeze on past it and pretend that it's not there or that it doesn't have as much weight as the rest of the Scriptures. But if we do that, if we just breeze past it, we pretend it's not there, if we, if we say, oh, well, he doesn't really mean what he says because it makes me uncomfortable or because I find it too hard to live by it, well, then where does that stop? At what, at what point do, do we stop being the arbiter and let God be the arbiter of truth? See, when we decide what, what scriptures we're going to listen to, when we decide what scriptures we're going to allow have authority over our lives, and we, put, we kick God off the throne in our life, and we put ourselves on the throne, and we start worshiping us as God, because we're the ones that's deciding what's true, not God. So here we get to it. Divorce is a difficult subject. And it's difficult in a lot of ways, mainly because so many marriages have been affected by it. Not just marriages that have been absent of a revelation of Christ, but people who are in the church are affected by divorce. The last thing I want to do is stand up here and preach condemnation over anyone, especially when Paul says in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. I don't want to point a finger at all the people who are divorced and say, shame on you, you adulterer. 
So if I did that, if I pointed the finger at all the divorced people and accused them of adultery, then I take the place of Satan, whose name literally means the accuser, first of all. And secondly, I'd have to point a finger at everybody else in the room, myself included. Because in the passage just before this, Jesus just said, if you even look at someone to lust after them, you've already committed the same sin of adultery as what this divorce causes. And who among us has not at some point in our life looked at someone with a lustful intent? So we're all guilty. Now don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not uh, making light of it. I'm not saying, well, everybody is in it, so no big deal. That's not at all what I'm saying. It is serious business. I told you last week, lust is serious business. Remember, Jesus said, it's better to cut your eye out than to let your whole body go into sin. It's better to do without whatever it is that's drawing you into sin than it is for you to have that pleasure and be cast into hell. I mean, and he puts it in terms of, of great sacrifice and great lengths that we should go to to avoid sin. I'm just pointing out that we're in a company of many. I'm not making light of it. We're in a company of many. And that doesn't make light of it at all. In fact, my hope is that you will see how much more egregious it is that so many of us forsake the glory of God and fall into this sin. Even the disciples had a hard time with this, guys. I mean, when they heard it in Matthew 19, and we'll look at the, uh, the account in Matthew 19 in a bit, um, but after Jesus had said essentially the same thing that he says here in Matthew, with a few more qualifiers, a, few, a little bit more information that he gives them, the disciples go to him and they're like, Lord, if this is what marriage is, if this is what it is to be with marriage, then it's better people just not to get married. That was their take on it. And you know what Jesus' response to that was? Yeah. <laughs> he said, it's only given to, I mean, it's only given to those who can receive it. Then he used the example of eunuchs. You know, only some people are, are eunuchs, and only some people, I mean, it, it, he said, it's hard truth. That's what he's saying. The thing is that in Matthew, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, what we, the conclusion that Jesus draws that we should come to, divorce is always wrapped up in sin. Always. Just look at what he says in his sermon. And let me just, let me point out before I get into it that for all that we know, this text here in Matthew 5, where Jesus makes this statement about divorce in his Sermon on the Mount. This is all that Jesus ever intended to say on the subject of divorce. Now, he, he says nearly the exact same thing in Luke chapter 16, with the exception of the exception clause, where he gives an exception to the rules around divorce. It's almost the exact same statement, it just excludes that one clause. Every other time that Jesus addresses divorce, it is in response to a question. Namely, the Pharisees asking him to try to trap him around the law of Moses. They want to paint Jesus as this guy who is coming in and he's teaching against the law of Moses so that they can garner ill will among the people towards him. So in other words, for all that we know, uh, it, it for all that we know, other than those 
uh, if they hadn't have asked him, if they hadn't approached him and pushed him on the subject and tried to trap him, for all that we know, this is all that we would have on the subject of divorce from Jesus. And, and he felt that this would have been sufficient and all that we needed to understand what we need to understand about divorce. Namely, like I said, that it is always wrapped up in sin. If you divorce your wife, you cause her to commit adultery. That's what Jesus said. Adultery is sin. It's sin for her because of the adultery. It's sin for you as the one who forces your wife into adultery because you are the cause of it. Jesus said, woe unto these who cause the little ones to stumble. But if that's not enough, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And we want you to know this is what the Lord says. Three times we're going to tell you. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. The man who puts away his wife, that's what divorce literally means, to put away. He's clothed in violence and he's faithless. On the other side of that, if you marry a woman who is divorced, you become an adulterer yourself. That's what Jesus said, right? And again, being an adulterer is sin. So on the one side we have sin, on the other side we have sin, but what about that middle part where Jesus says, except on the grounds of, of sexual morality? He gives an, an exemption there. Well, yeah, sure. Sure, there's an exemption. But even so, that divorce that is caused on the grounds of sexual morality is only allowed because of sin, right? So there's always sin involved in, in divorce. So it's just better to not go there. And I think Jesus would have been content to just, to just leave it with that, to leave us with that. Guys, don't, don't do this. There's, there's no good thing that can come from this. There's no easy thing that can come from this. This is not the way it was intended. But others pressed him on the subject, and because they were trying to trap him, uh, they pressed him. Matthew 19, 3. Let's, let's look at that. The Pharisees came to Jesus, and this is where they pressed him on it. In verse 3... They said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, undoubtedly, they had heard Jesus' teaching at the Sermon on the Mount, or they had heard about it. This is what he's teaching. Guys, there's this guy out there, and he's got this huge following, and he's teaching about divorce. And they had some pretty uh, rigid rules about it, but they were rigid only to the extent that they allowed them to skirt the law to skirt the heart of the law, to get by with their hard-heartedness. They wanted to trap Jesus, and so they come to them and ask him, is it lawful for people to get divorced for any cause? And Jesus answered in verse 4, have you not read? So he goes back to the Scripture. Jesus appeals to the Scripture, to the Pentateuch. He goes back to Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. That What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And Then they ask him in verse 7. Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And so to this, Jesus answers, because of your hardness of heart, 
Interesting. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it is not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, again, he repeats what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, I don't, I don't want to fall into the error of saying more than what the Bible has to say about his subject. I don't want to say less either. But I think it's very interesting that when he pressed them, or when he was pressed about it, when they came to him and said, well, doesn't even, well, why did Moses say you can have a certificate of divorce and put her away? Why did Moses allow that? Jesus answered with, because of your hardness of heart. Not because of their hardness of heart, not because people were doing all kinds of bad things back then, but because of your hardness of heart. He didn't make it past tense, he made it present. He allowed you to divorce your wives because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it wasn't this way. Very clearly stating that this wasn't the intention. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. He allowed you to divorce your wives, which means to send them away because your hearts are hard. So think about it culturally and historically. Women were in a much different spot then than they are now. The situation, if a husband uh, fell out of favor, he didn't like his wife anymore for whatever reason, um, he just didn't want to deal with her, maybe he found another wife, which was very often the case, he found someone else that he wanted to marry, but he was tied to this one and he didn't want to make it work, so he put this one away so he could go after that one. Um, If he weren't allowed to do that, if he had to stick with his wife, this wife had to stay with him it would become a very difficult situation for her. The husband decided he no longer wanted her, but he was not able to send her away. It could become very treacherous for her, and it very often did. He became very abusive and, and treacherous for the wife. And of course, you know, she has no authority. She has no power to protect and defend herself. We cannot look at this uh, at this uh, uh, exception by Moses, where Moses allowed divorce. We cannot look at that and say that God is compromising on sin. We know that God does not compromise on sin. We can't look at it and say, God is saying, well, men are just going to be men, boys will be boys, and they're sinful, so it would be better just to look the other way. That's not what this is. This is not a compromise on sin. What God is doing is showing compassion toward women who had no power. He's allowing them and preventing them from being in bondage physically and emotionally in abusive situations. And again, I want to be careful and not say more than what the Scripture has to say. But if you do a careful reading here, it's pretty clear that Jesus isn't excusing their behavior and their practice of divorce. He condemned their hearts. He clearly stated that it wasn't the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. This wasn't the design. And he said, the only reason this exists is because you have a hard heart. You, husband, have hard hearts, and you would be wicked and treacherous to your wives if this weren't allowed. Since God does not compromise on sin, we cannot conclude this was a compromise. Instead, it was compassion for their wives. So very clearly, they were bad husbands, right? Were there bad wives also? You bet. Absolutely. 
let me lay a really more difficult truth on you. Ephesians 5 teaches us that a husband's job is to deal with and sanctify and purify and cleanse and present back to himself as spotless, really bad wives. It's your job to pray for her, to counsel her, to disciple her, to fight for her, to die for her. We don't get an out. Let's just read it, Ephesians 5, 25. The apostle is writing to the church and he says, he's addressing marriage and he's explaining marriage. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. In the same way. In what way? The same way that Christ just loved the church, that he presented her back to himself, spotless without wrinkle, that he sanctified her and cleansed her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, this is familiar language to you, or it ought to be, therefore shall... uh, a man, our father, a man leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What mystery is that? That two should become one. That a, a man would leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and that they would become one flesh. They would be bound together and joined together in marriage. What's Paul saying? Marriage is the picture of what Christ has done for the church. Marriage is the picture of of what we're all doing here. Marriage is a picture of a glorious reality of Christ and His bride. Let's go back to the very beginning, which is where both Jesus and Paul are appealing to, to paint this picture, to show us why marriage is so important, why it is so sacred, why it is so foundational. Genesis 2.20 The man, that's Adam, gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. That was the job that God had given him. Name everything. Everything passed before him and he gave it a name and he found there was nothing like him. But for Adam there was not found a helper for him. Verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in his flesh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here's that familiar passage. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
So I want you to understand this was what we just read there, the creation of Eve. This was the picture of Christ and his church. Jesus is the better husband, however. There's a reason that both Jesus and Paul appeal to this at the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, Adam and the creation of Eve for the sanctity and importance and value of marriage. I want to see if I can throw a few parallels at you here, some quick parallels and let you see. Adam was put into a deep sleep. Jesus was put into a grave. He died. What deeper sleep can you get? Adam had given his rib in order for Eve to come about. His bones were broken. Jesus gave his life for his church. None of his bones were broken. God split Adam's side and took a rib to make Eve. According to the Gospel of John, a soldier pierced Jesus' side, and from it blood and water flowed. The blood of the new covenant and the water of baptism, communion and baptism, the, the sacraments that mark the church, symbols of his church. As Eve was born out of Adam's side, so the church was born out of Christ's side. Adam awoke to find Eve his bride. Christ rose from the grave and ascended into heaven to present to himself a spotless bride. Adam's covenant is one of flesh and bone. Finally, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. It is only for the life of the flesh. Jesus' covenant is a covenant of spirit. It is for all eternity. Adam and Eve were bound in law. Jesus has bound us to himself and purchased us in himself in his own blood. He has sealed us in his own spirit. He has established us in his grace. This thing that we do when we say, I do, it's a picture of what Christ did on the cross for his church. Jesus and Paul, they both go back to the beginning in order to show us that this is what marriage is about. He is the lamb who was slain from the beginning, from the foundations of the earth. There's a reason that we have this covenant. It's to paint a picture of what Christ has done for us all. A divine and holy picture that is being portrayed throughout the ages. It's a picture of the risen Christ. The glory of a Savior who bled and died and rose again in order to wash her and cleanse her and make her whole. To present His church to Himself as a spotless bride. Not to put her away. And Jesus is telling us, guys, you make a mockery of this picture when you put her away. I could go on and I could spend all day talking about why divorce is destructive. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. Those of you who have been through it, you know it. It's not something that you want to do. It's painful. I can tell you why it's against God's plan, why he didn't intend it that way, but I just don't feel like that's very helpful. Everyone who has had a broken marriage, they know it. They know it. Most likely it was a traumatic experience, and it is not something that people want to do over and over again. There's no pleasure in it. Unlike most sin, there's, there's no pleasure in a broken marriage. You know, lust will entice you for the pleasures of the flesh. 
You break a marriage, that's just hard. Even if you're pursuing lust for someone else, there's still, it's, man, it's rough. No one wants to go through it. Everyone who's had a broken marriage knows it. We need to look no further than the woman at the well or the adulterous woman in the Gospel of Luke to know how Jesus responds to people who have fallen in this particular sin. And they've fallen not once, but twice. Not twice, but three times or four times. The woman at the well had five husbands, and the one that she was with wasn't her husband. What did he say? Go and sin no more. That's what he said. The last time I preached on this subject was, gosh, three or four years ago. And I focused on that phrase that we use in our, our wedding ceremonies that we hear all the time, from this day forward. To have and to hold from this day forward. And isn't that where we are? I mean, aren't we all there? Not, not just with marriage and divorce, but with all of our sin. Aren't we there from this day forward? Isn't that where we find ourselves? You know, it's not like we can go back and change what's been done. You can't go back and unmurder someone. Is there forgiveness for murder? Sure. You can't go back in time and unadultery. You've done it. The deed has been done. You can't go back and undo it. But from this day forward, I can't change what's been done. You know, Paul, he persecuted Christians, which at the very least means that he was complicit and instrumental in their, uh, uh, in their imprisonment and in their torture. At the worst, it means he murdered them. We don't know for sure. All we know is that he's, he persecuted Christians. And yet, there came a moment for Paul where all of that was changed. What is Paul to do? Is he to go back and unpersecute people? How does he do that? You can't. From this day forward, from this day forward, what is to be done? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul addresses this very thing. He says, Or do you not know that unrighteousness will not enter the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, these are hard words. Do not be deceived. Because neither sexual neither, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's what Jesus is talking about, adultery, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy. If you're just greedy, you don't get to go to heaven. Drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You guys were drunkards. You guys were revilers and swindlers. You cheated on your taxes. You did, you did bad things. Sexually immoral. You were adulterers. You divorced your wives and married someone else. You, you adulterers. You lusted after other people. You adulterers. And you don't get to go to heaven. You can't get into the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But Paul gives a solution, right? Because they can't go back and undo that. I can't undo it. So Paul gives a solution. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's what he did for his church as the better husband. He sanctified her and presented her to himself spotless 
He cleansed us of all of our unrighteousness. From this day forward, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And church, if you see, then live in the light, not in the darkness. That's what he's saying. Am I trying to make any of this a little thing? Am I trying to belittle it or make it seem as it's not a big deal? No. I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of ending a marriage. It's a big deal. I just feel it's better for us and it produces far more redemptive fruit and it calls us to a far higher and better life if we look at the glorious picture that we have of the marriage of Christ and his church at our better husband. And we shoot for that, right? He's my guide and my example. I can't change what's been done. You can't change what's been done. But you can live from this day forward in the newness of life, in the gospel of light. To the extent that my marriage is great, to the extent that our marriages are great, to that we all just get along great and it's wonderful, all glory goes to God. And to the extent that we have to fight every minute to preserve them, to the extent that we struggle every day to stay in them, all glory goes to God. And He is glorified in it. It all belongs to Him. And we owe Him, and we owe His church, and we owe His sacrifice a better picture. Let's pray. Father God, I love You, and I thank You for Your Word. I pray that You will... Uh, Help us, Lord. Help us in, in marriage. Help us to see that you are our better husband and that you have called us to be like you. But I know that the enemy comes strong against families and he wants us to live under condemnation. But you said in, in Romans, your apostle Paul said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, all that is old Behold, we have put on the new man. Help us to walk in that from this day forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.